This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Small Town by Philip K. Dick. It's read for us by Greg Marguerite. After the podcast, we'll be discussing the story. SFF Audio presents Small Town by Philip K. Dick. Read by Greg Marguerite. Vern Haskell crept miserably up the front steps of his house, his overcoat dragging behind him. He was tired, tired and discouraged, and his feet ached. My God! Madge exclaimed as he closed the door and peeled off his coat and hat. You home already? Haskell dumped his briefcase and began untying his shoes. His body sagged. His face was drawn and gray. Say something! Dinner ready? No, dinner isn't ready. What's wrong this time? Another fight with Larson? Haskell slumped into the kitchen and filled a glass with warm water and soda. Let's move, he said. Move? Away from Woodland to San Francisco. Anywhere. Haskell drank his soda, his middle-aged flabby body supported by the gleaming sink. I feel lousy. Maybe I ought to see Doc Barnes again. I wish this was Friday and tomorrow was Saturday. What do you want for dinner? Nothing. I don't know. Haskell shook his head wearily. Anything. He sank down at the kitchen table. All I want is rest. Open a can of stew, pork and beans, anything. I suggest we go out to Don's Steakhouse. On Monday they have good sirloin. No, I've seen enough human faces today. I suppose you're too tired to drive me over to Helen Grant's. The car's in the garage, busted again. If you took better care of it... What the hell do you want me to do, carry it around in a cellophane bag? Don't shout at me, Vern Haskell. Madge flushed with anger. Maybe you want to fix your own dinner. Haskell got wearily to his feet. He shuffled toward the cellar door. I'll see you. Where are you going? Downstairs in the basement. Oh, Lord, Madge cried wildly. Those trains, those toys, how can a grown man, a middle-aged man? Haskell said nothing. He was already halfway down the stairs, feeling around for the basement light. The basement was cool and moist. Haskell took his engineer's cap from the hook and fitted it on his head. Excitement and a faint surge of renewed energy filled his tired body. He approached the great plywood table with eager steps. Tracks ran everywhere, along the floor, under the coal bin, among the steam pipes of the furnace. The tracks converged at the table, rising up on carefully graded ramps. The table itself was littered with transformers and signals and switches and heaps of equipment and wiring and... and the town. The detailed, painfully accurate model of woodland. Every tree and house, every store and building and street and fireplug. A minute town, each facet in perfect order constructed with elaborate care throughout the years, as long as he could remember, since he was a kid, building and gluing and working after school. Haskell turned on the main transformer. 
All along the track, signal lights glowed. He fed power to the heavy Lionel engine parked with its load of freight cars. The engine sped smoothly into life, gliding along the track, a flashing dark projectile of metal that made his breath catch in his throat. He opened an electric switch, and the engine headed down the ramp through a tunnel and off the table. It raced under the workbench. His trains. And his town. Haskell bent over the miniature houses and streets, his heart glowing with pride. He had built it. Himself. Every inch. Every perfect inch. The whole town. He touched the corner of Fred's grocery store. Not a detail lacking. Even the windows, the displays of food, the signs, the counters. The uptown hotel. He ran his hand over its flat roof. The sofas and chairs in the lobby, he could see them through the window. Green's drugstore, bunion pad displays, magazines, Fraser's auto parts, Mexico City dining, Sharpenstein's apparel, Bob's liquor store, Ace billiard parlor, the whole town. He ran his hands over it. He had built it. The town was his. The train came rushing back out from under the workbench. Its wheels passed over an automatic switch, and a drawbridge lowered itself obediently. The train swept over and beyond, dragging its cars behind it. Haskell turned up the power. The train gained speed. Its whistle sounded. It turned a sharp curve and grated across a cross-track. More speed. Haskell's hands jerked convulsively at the transformer. The train leaped and shot ahead. It swayed and bucked as it shot around a curve. The transformer was turned up to maximum. The train was a clattering blur of speed, rushing along the track, across bridges and switches behind the big pipes of the floor's furnace. It disappeared into the coal bin. A moment later it swept out the other side, rocking wildly. Haskell slowed the train down. He was breathing hard, his chest rising painfully. He sat down on the stool by the workbench and lit a cigarette with shaking fingers. The train, the model town, gave him a strange feeling. It was hard to explain. He had always loved trains, model engines, and signals, and buildings. Since he was a little kid, maybe six or seven. His father had given him his first train, an engine and a few pieces of track, an old widened-up train. When he was nine, he got his first real electric train and two switches. He added to it, year after year. Track, engines, switches, cars, signals, more powerful transformers, and the beginnings of the town. He had built the town up carefully, piece by piece. First when he was in junior high, the model of the Southern Pacific Depot, then the taxi stand next door, the cafe where the drivers ate, Broad Street, and so on. More and more houses, buildings, stores, a whole town growing under his hands as the years went by. Every afternoon he came home from school and worked, glued and cut and painted and sawed. Now it was virtually complete, almost done. He was forty-three years old and the town was almost done. Haskell moved around the big plywood table, his hands extended reverently. He touched a miniature store here and there, the flower shop, the theater, the telephone company, Larson's Pump and Valve Works, that too, where he worked, his place of business, a perfect miniature of the plant, down to the last detail. Haskell scowled. Jim Larson. For twenty years he had worked there, slaved day after day, 
For what? To see others advanced over him? Younger men, favorites of the boss, yes men with bright ties and pressed pants and wide, stupid grins. Misery and hatred welled up in Haskell. All his life Woodland had got the better of him. He had never been happy. The town had always been against him. Miss Murphy in high school, the frats in college, clerks in the snooty department stores, his neighbors, cops and mailmen and bus drivers and delivery boys and even his wife, even Madge. He had never meshed with the town, the rich, expensive little suburb of San Francisco down the peninsula beyond the fog belt. Woodland was too damn upper-middle class, too many big houses and lawns and chrome cars and deck chairs, too stuffy and sleek. As long as he could remember, in school, his job, Larson, the pump and valve works, twenty years of hard work. Haskell's fingers closed over the tiny building, the model of Larson's pump and valve works. Savagely, he ripped it loose and threw it to the floor. He crushed it underfoot, grinding the bits of glass and metal and cardboard into a shapeless mass. God, he was shaking all over. He stared down at the remains, his heart pounding wildly. Strange emotions, crazy emotions, twisted through him. Thoughts he never had had before. For a long time he gazed down at the crumpled wad by his shoe, what had once been the model of Larson's pump and valve works. Abruptly he pulled away. In a trance, he returned to his workbench and sat stiffly down on the stool. He pulled his tools and materials together, clicking the power drill on. It took only a few moments. Working rapidly with quick expert fingers, Haskell assembled a new model. He painted glued, fitted pieces together. He lettered a microscopic sign and sprayed a green lawn into place. Then he carried the new model carefully over to the table and glued it in the correct spot. The place where Larson's pump and valve works had been. The new building gleamed in the overhead light, still moist and shiny. Woodland Mortuary. Haskell rubbed his hands in an ecstasy of satisfaction. The valve works was gone. He had destroyed it, obliterated it, removed it from the town. Below him was Woodland, without the valve works, a mortuary instead. His eyes gleamed, his lips twitched, his surging emotions swelled. He had got rid of it, in a brief flurry of action, in a second. The whole thing was simple, amazingly easy. Odd he hadn't thought of it before. Sipping a tall glass of ice-cold beer thoughtfully, Madge Haskell said, There's something wrong with Vern. I noticed it especially last night when he came home from work. Dr. Paul Tyler grunted absently. A highly neurotic type, sense of inferiority, withdrawal, and introversion. But he's getting worse, him and his trains, those damn model trains. My God, Paul, do you know he has a whole town down there in the basement? Tyler was curious. Really? I never knew that. All the time I've known him, he's had them down there. Started when he was a kid. Imagine a grown man playing with trains. It's, it's disgusting. Every night the same thing. Interesting. Tyler rubbed his jaw. He keeps at them continually, an unvarying pattern. Every night. Last night he didn't even eat dinner. He just came home and went directly down. Paul Tyler's polished features twisted into a frown. Across from him, Madge sat languidly sipping her beer. 
It was two in the afternoon. The day was warm and bright. The living room was attractive in a lazy, quiet way. Abruptly, Tyler got to his feet. Let's take a look at them. The models. I didn't know it had gone so far. You really want to? Madge slid back the sleeve of her green silk lounge pajamas and consulted her wristwatch. He won't be home until five. She jumped to her feet, setting down her glass. All right. We have time. Fine. Let's go down. Tyler caught hold of Madge's arm and they hurried down into the basement, a strange excitement flooding through them. Madge clicked on the basement light and they approached the big plywood table, giggling and nervous, like mischievous children. See? Madge said, squeezing Tyler's arm. Look at it. Took years. All his life. Tyler nodded slowly. Must have. There was awe in his voice. I've never seen anything like it. The detail. He has skill. Yes, Vern is good with his hands, Madge indicated the workbench. He buys tools all the time. Tyler walked slowly around the big table, bending over and peering. Amazing. Every building. The whole town is here. Look, there's my place. He indicated his luxurious apartment building a few blocks from the Haskell residence. I guess it's all there, Madge said. Imagine a grown man coming down here and playing with model trains. Power. Tyler pushed an engine along a track. That's why it appeals to boys. Trains are big things, huge and noisy. Power sex symbols. The boy sees the train rushing along the track. It's so huge and ruthless it scares him. Then he gets a toy train, a model like these. He controls it, makes it start, stop, go slow, fast. He runs it. It responds to him. Madge shivered. Let's go upstairs where it's warm. It's so cold down here. But as the boy grows up, he gets bigger and stronger. He can shed the model symbol, master the real object, the real train, get genuine control over things, valid mastery. Tyler shook his head. Not this substitute thing. Unusual, a grown person going to such lengths. He frowned. I never noticed a mortuary on State Street. A mortuary? And this, Steuben Pet Shop, next door to the radio repair shop. There's no pet shop there. Tyler cudgeled his brain. What is there, next to the radio repair place? Paris Furs. Madge clasped her arms. Brr, come on, Paul, let's go upstairs before I freeze. Tyler laughed. Okay, sissy. He headed toward the stairs, frowning again. I wonder why. Steuben Pets. Never heard of it. Everything is so detailed. He must know the town by heart to put a shop there that isn't... He clicked off the basement light. And the mortuary. What's supposed to be there? Isn't the... Forget it. Madge called back, hurrying past him into the warm living room. You're practically as bad as he is. Men are such children. Tyler didn't respond. He was deep in thought. His suave confidence was gone. He looked nervous and shaken. Madge pulled the Venetian blinds down. The living room sank into amber gloom. She flopped down on the couch and pulled Tyler down beside her. Stop looking like that, she ordered. 
I've never seen you this way. Her slim arms circled his neck, and her lips brushed close to his ear. I wouldn't have let you in if I thought you were going to worry about him. Tyler grunted, preoccupied. Why did you let me in? The pressure of Madge's arms increased. Her silk pajamas rustled as she moved against him. Silly, she said. Big, red-headed Jim Larson gaped in disbelief. What do you mean? What's the matter with you? I'm quitting. Haskell shoveled the contents of his desk into his briefcase. Mail the check to my house. But... Get out of the way. Haskell pushed past Larson out into the hall. Larson was stunned with amazement. There was a fixed expression on Haskell's face. A glazed look, a rigid look. Larson had never seen before. Are you all right? Larson asked. Sure. Haskell opened the front door of the plant and disappeared outside. The door slammed after him. Sure, I'm all right, he muttered to himself. He made his way through the crowds of late afternoon shoppers, his lips twitching. You damn right I'm all right. Watch it, buddy, a laborer muttered ominously as Haskell shoved past him. Sorry. Haskell hurried on, gripping his briefcase. At the top of the hill, he paused a moment to get his breath. Behind him was Larson's pump and valve works. Haskell laughed shrilly. Twenty years? Cut short in a second. It was over. No more Larson, no more dull grinding job day after day, without promotion or future. Routine and boredom months on end. It was over and done for. A new life was beginning. He hurried on. The sun was setting. Cars streaked by him. Businessmen going home from work. Tomorrow they would be going back. But not him. Not ever again. He reached his own street. Ed Tilden's house rose up, a great stately structure of concrete and glass. Tilden's dog came rushing out to bark. Haskell hastened past. Tilden's dog. He laughed wildly. Better keep away, he shouted at the dog. He reached his own house and leaped up the front steps two at a time. He tore the door open. The living room was dark and silent. There was a sudden stir of motion, shapes untangling themselves, getting quickly up from the couch. Fern! Madge gasped. What are you doing home so early? Vern Haskell threw his briefcase down and dropped his hat and coat over a chair. His lined face was twisted with emotion, pulled out of shape by violent inner forces. What in the world? Madge fluttered, hurrying toward him nervously, smoothing down her lounge pajamas. Has something happened? I didn't expect you so... She broke off, blushing. I mean, I... Paul Tyler strolled leisurely toward Haskell. Hi there, Vern, he murmured, embarrassed. Dropped by to say hello and return a book to your wife. Haskell nodded curtly. Afternoon. He turned and headed toward the basement door, ignoring the two of them. I'll be downstairs. But, Vern, Madge protested, what's happened? Vern halted briefly at the door. I quit my job. You what? I quit my job. I finished Larson off. There won't be any more of him. 
The basement door slammed. Good Lord! Matt shrieked, clutching at Tyler hysterically. He's gone out of his mind! Down in the basement, Vern Haskell snapped on the light impatiently. He put on his engineer's cap and pulled his stool up beside the great plywood table. What next? Mars Home Furnishings, the big plush store, where the clerks all looked down their noses at him. He rubbed his hands gleefully. No more of them. No more snooty clerks lifting their eyebrows when he came in. Only hair and bow ties and folded handkerchiefs. He removed the model of Morris Home Furnishings and disassembled it. He worked feverishly with frantic haste. Now that he had really begun, he wasted no time. A moment later, he was gluing two small buildings in its place. Ritz Shoeshine, Pete's Bowling Alley. Haskell giggled excitedly. Fitting extinction for the luxurious exclusive furniture store. A shoeshine parlor and a bowling alley. Just what it deserved. The California State Bank. He had always hated the bank. They had once refused him a loan. He pulled the bank loose. Ed Tilden's mansion. His damn dog. The dog had bit him on the ankle one afternoon. He ripped the model off. His head spun. He could do anything. Harrison Appliance. They had sold him a bum radio. Off came Harrison Appliance. Joe's Cigar and Smoke Shop. Joe had given him a lead quarter in May 1949. Off came Joe's. The Ink Works. He loathed the smell of ink. Maybe a bread factory instead. He loved baking bread. Off came the Ink Works. Elm Street was too dark at night. A couple of times he had stumbled. A few more streetlights were in order. Not enough bars along High Street. Too many dress shops and expensive hat and fur shops and ladies' apparel. He ripped a whole handful loose and carried them to the workbench. At the top of the stairs, the door opened slowly. Madge peered down, pale and frightened. Burn? He scowled up impatiently. What do you want? Madge came downstairs hesitantly. Behind her, Dr. Tyler followed suave and handsome in his gray suit. Vern, is everything all right? Of course. Did you really quit your job? Haskell nodded. He began to disassemble the inkworks, ignoring his wife and Dr. Tyler. But why? Haskell grunted impatiently. No time. Dr. Tyler had begun to look worried. Do I understand you're too busy for your job? That's right. Too busy doing what? Tyler's voice rose. He was trembling nervously. Working down here on this town of yours, changing things? Go away, Haskell muttered. His deft hands were assembling a lovely little Langendorf bread factory. He shaped it with loving care, sprayed it with white paint, brushed a gravel walk and shrubs in front of it. He put it aside and began on a park, a big green park. Woodland had always needed a park. It would go in place of the State Street Hotel. Tyler pulled Madge away from the table off in a corner of the basement. Good God! He lit a cigarette shakily. The cigarette flipped out of his hands and rolled away. He ignored it and fumbled for another. You see? 
You see what he's doing? Mad shook her head mutely. What is it? I, I don't... How long has he been working on this? All his life? Madge nodded, white-faced. Yes, all his life. Tyler's features twisted. My God, Madge, it's enough to drive you out of your mind. I can hardly believe it. We've got to do something. What's happening? Madge moaned. What? He's losing himself into it. Tyler's face was a mask of incredulous disbelief. Faster and faster. He's always come down here, Madge faltered. It's nothing new. He's always wanted to get away. Yes, get away, Tyler shuddered, clenched his fists and pulled himself together. He advanced across the basement and stopped by Vern Haskell. What do you want? Haskell muttered, noticing him. Tyler licked his lips. You're uh, adding some things, aren't you? New buildings. Haskell nodded. Tyler touched the little bread factory with shaking fingers. What's this, bread? Where does it go? He moved around the table. I don't remember any bread factory in Woodland. He whirled. You aren't by any chance improving on the town, fixing it up here and there. Get the hell out of here, Haskell said with ominous calm. Both of you. Vern! Madge squeaked. I've got a lot to do. You can bring sandwiches down about eleven. I hope to finish sometime tonight. Finish? Tyler asked. Finish, Haskell answered, returning to his work. Come on, Madge. Tyler grabbed her and pulled her to the stairs. Let's get out of here. He strode ahead of her, up to the stairs and into the hall. Come on. As soon as she was up, he closed the door tightly after them. Madge dabbed at her eyes hysterically. He's gone crazy, Paul. What'll we do? Tyler was deep in thought. Be quiet. I have to think this out. He paced back and forth, a hard scowl on his features. It'll come soon. It won't be long. Not at this rate. Sometime tonight. What? What do you mean? His withdrawal into his substitute world, the improvised model he controls, where he can get away. Isn't there something we can do? Do? Tyler smiled faintly. Do we want to do something? Madge gasped. But we can't just... Maybe this will solve our problem. This may be what we've been looking for. Tyler eyed Mrs. Haskell thoughtfully. This may be just the thing. It was after midnight, almost two o'clock in the morning, when he began to get things into final shape. He was tired, but alert. Things were happening fast. The job was almost done. Virtually perfect. He halted work a moment, surveying what he had accomplished. The town had been radically changed. About ten o'clock he had begun basic structural alterations in the layout of the streets. He had removed most of the public buildings, the civic center, and the sprawling business district around it. He had erected a new city hall, police station, and an immense park with fountains and indirect lighting. He had cleared the slum area, the old run-down stores and houses and streets. The streets were wider and well-lit. The houses were now small and clean, the stores modern and attractive without being ostentatious. 
All advertising signs had been removed. Most of the filling stations were gone. The immense factory area was gone, too. Rolling countryside took its place. Trees and hills and green grass. The wealthy district had been altered. There were now only a few of the mansions left, belonging to persons he looked favorably on. The rest had been cut down, turned into uniform two-bedroom dwellings, one story with a single garage each. The city hall was no longer an elaborate Rococo structure. Now it was low and simple, modeled after the Parthenon, a favorite of his. There were ten or twelve persons who had done him special harm. He had altered their houses considerably, given them wartime housing, unit apartments, six to a building, at the far edge of town where the wind came off the bay carrying the smell of decaying mudflats. Jim Larson's house was completely gone. He had erased Larson utterly. He no longer existed, not in this new woodland, which was now almost complete. Almost. Haskell studied his work intently. All the changes had to be made now, not later. This was the time of creation. Later, when it had been finished, it could not be altered. He had to catch all the necessary changes now, or forget them. The new woodland looked pretty good, clean and neat and simple. The rich district had been toned down, the poor district had been improved. Glaring ads, signs, displays had all been changed or removed. The business community was smaller. Parks and countryside took the place of factories. The civic center was lovely. He added a couple of playgrounds for smaller kids, a small theater instead of the enormous uptown with its flashing neon sign. After some consideration, he removed most of the bars he had previously constructed. The new woodland was going to be moral, extremely moral. Few bars, no billiards, no red-light district, and there was an especially fine jail for undesirables. The most difficult part had been the microscopic lettering on the main office door of the city hall. He had left it until last, and then painted the words with agonizing care. Mayor Vernon R. Haskell A few last changes. He gave the Edwards a 39 Plymouth instead of a new Cadillac. He added more trees in the downtown district. One more fire department, one less dress shop. He had never liked taxis. On impulse, he removed the taxi stand and put in a flower shop. Haskell rubbed his hands. Anything more? Or was it complete? Perfect? He studied each part intently. What had he overlooked? The high school. He removed it and put in two smaller high schools, one at each end of town. Another hospital. That took almost half an hour. He was getting tired. His hands were less swift. He mopped his forehead shakily. Anything else? He sat down on his stool wearily to rest and think. All done. It was complete. Joy welled up in him. A bursting cry of happiness. His work was over. Finished, Vern Haskell shouted. He got unsteadily to his feet. He closed his eyes, held his arms out, and advanced toward the plywood table. Reaching, grasping, fingers extended, Haskell headed toward it, a look of radiant exaltation on his seamed middle-aged face. Upstairs, Tyler and Madge heard the shout, a distant booming that rolled through the house in waves. 
Madge winced in terror. What was that? Tyler listened intently. He heard Haskell moving below them in the basement. Abruptly, he stubbed out his cigarette. I think it's happened. Sooner than I expected. It? You mean he's... Tyler got quickly to his feet. He's gone, Madge. Into his other world. We're finally free. Madge caught his arm. Maybe we're making a mistake. It's so terrible. Shouldn't we try to do something? Bring him out of it? Try to pull him back? Bring him back? Tyler laughed nervously. I don't think we could now. Even if we wanted to. It's too late. He hurried toward the basement door. Come on. It's horrible. Madge shuddered and followed reluctantly. I wish we had never got started. Tyler halted briefly at the door. Horrible? He's happier where he is now, and you're happier. The way it was, nobody was happy. This is the best thing. He opened the basement door. Madge followed him. They moved cautiously down the stairs into the dark, silent basement, damp with the faint night mists. The basement was empty. Tyler relaxed. He was overcome with dazed relief. He's gone. Everything's okay. It worked out exactly right. But I don't understand, Madge repeated hopelessly as Tyler's Buick purred along the dark, deserted streets. Where did he go? You know where he went, Tyler answered. Into his substitute world, of course. He screeched around a corner on two wheels. The rest should be fairly simple. A few routine forms. There really isn't much left now. The night was frigid and bleak. No lights showed except an occasional lonely street lamp. Far off, a train whistle sounded mournfully, a dismal echo. Rows of silent houses flickered by on both sides of them. Where are we going? Madge asked. She sat huddled against the door, face pale with shock and terror, shivering under her coat. To the police station. Why? To report him, naturally, so they'll know he's gone. We'll have to wait. It'll be several years before he'll be declared legally dead. Tyler reached over and hugged her briefly. We'll make out in the meantime, I'm sure. What if they find him? Tyler shook his head angrily. He was still tense, on edge. Don't you understand? They'll never find him. He doesn't exist, at least not in our world. He's in his own world. You saw it, the model, the improved substitute. He's there? All his life he's worked on it, built it up, made it real. He brought that world into being, and now he's in it. That's what he wanted. That's why he built it. He didn't merely dream about an escape world. He actually constructed it, every bit and piece. Now he's warped himself right out of our world into it, out of our lives. Madge finally began to understand. Then he really did lose himself in his substitute world. You meant that, what you said about him getting away? It took me a while to realize it. The mind constructs reality, frames it, creates it. We all have a common reality, a common dream, but Haskell turned his back on our common reality and created his own. And he had a unique capacity, far beyond the ordinary. He devoted his whole life, his whole skill to building it. He's there now. 
Tyler hesitated and frowned. He gripped the wheel tightly and increased speed. The Buick hissed along the dark street, through the silent, unmoving bleakness that was the town. There's only one thing, he continued presently. One thing I don't understand. What is it? The model. that was also gone. I assumed he'd shrink, I suppose, merge with it. But the model's gone, too. Tyler shrugged. It doesn't matter. He peered into the darkness. We're almost there. This is Elm. It was then Madge screamed. Look! To the right of the car was a small, neat building and a sign. The sign was easily visible in the darkness. Woodland Mortuary. Madge was sobbing in horror. The car roared forward automatically, guided by Tyler's numb hands. Another sign flashed briefly as they coasted up before the city hall. Steuben Pet Shop. The city hall was lit by recessed, hidden illumination. A low, simple building, a square of glowing white, like a marble Greek temple. Tyler pulled the car to a halt, then suddenly shrieked and started up again, but not soon enough. The two shiny black police cars came silently up around the Buick, one on each side. The four stern cops already had their hands on the door, stepping out and coming towards him, grim and efficient. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tomahome. And I'm Greg. Wow, what a great story we just heard. <laughs> yeah, it was actually excellent. I, I've, I listened to it three or four times this week. Well, but and... the narrator, I mean, I threw up a little in my mouth. Hold on a second. <laughs> I think the narrator is terrific. I, I really do. I'm a big fan of his narration. You know, you're actually getting better at girls, too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I try, I try to be unisex. Do you wear high heels when you do the girl voices? <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, just, uh, I, I just go into a softer uh, uh, tone and, and try to be not more emotional, because that's, that's really not true, but um, you know, if you listen to women talk, they, uh, the, the ends of their sentences go up. They're always questioning you. They're not making mm. statements at you. Yeah, so what's, say, what's with that? That's a very girly thing to say, Tam. Yeah. Let me touch with my feminine side. Well, so, yeah, me too. And it's just more tentative, is you know, the way they speak, unless they're actually mad and you can picture them with their hands on their hips saying, don't talk to me that way, Mr. Right. You know, you know, I I want to uh, I I want to ask this question because this is a this is a question that sort of bothers me after I finish reading. I say, oh, like maybe the fifth time or sixth time, I think, oh crap, what kind of story is this? Um, in the PDF, it says it's a horror story. Uh, it's it's like um, a terror story or something like that at the beginning intro. But I don't know, is it a fantasy story, science fiction story? What do you guys think? Urban fantasy? <laughs> so, suburban fantasy, yeah. Yeah, small town fantasy. Or Twilight this, Zone. Yeah, exactly. This thing read like a Twilight Zone episode. Uh, and yeah. so it, it, it was science fiction and fantasy. I mean, technically, there's not really a speculative idea here that's integral to the plot, other than the fact that this guy was able to manifest his, his mm -hmm. wishes upon reality. But... We don't have any mechanics of how he did that. It just happened. It's yeah. it's it's right up Rod Serling's alley. 
Um, but yeah, the blurb at the beginning says paranoid Vern Haskell. Yeah. Like what was paranoid about this? I'm guy? not sure. I, I mean, there's, he, he should be paranoid. His wife is cheating on him. Right. But he's been working on those trains since he was a kid. Yeah, but that doesn't I mean, indicate paranoia. That indicates okay. escapism. You, you know what I mean? He's just trying to get away. He he does remember all his grudges. I I, I made a whole lot yeah. of notes, and uh, you know he's punishing people for uh, for for what they did in 1949. You know he gave me a lead quarter. Yeah, the cigar store. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he just destroyed the cigar store. But for he, there's another point where he says, you know, there were 12 people in particular who were mean to him. And he put them in army barracks on the edge of town where he could smell the mud flats. Right. Rotting and all that. Yeah. So. And then he also he's also uh, redistributing wealth. He takes the, uh, yep. the rich people's houses. He keeps a He leaves a couple of the honorable ones, but everybody else, he, he puts them in uh, suburban tract housing or something like that. Right. Uniform two dwelling bedroom houses, one story with a single garage each, not so they can have six cars. Yeah. Yeah. But but this category of fantasy and I and I guess it is a fantasy. It's a fantasy because it's about playing God. Yeah. I I, I mean that 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 I was trying to find the other resonances in it and uh there are lots of sort of biblical, you know, uh, and then he rested. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of yeah, exactly. things going on, and yeah. it's fun. He ate a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> he rested, and then he made a sandwich. Yep, yep. His, his ungrateful wife, who's cheating on him, made him a sandwich. But I mean, think about it. What would you do if you could rearrange your neighborhood, or your province, or your continent, Absolutely. or your world, or you know? I don't know uh, if I'd move buildings around. I think I'd move people around before I'd move buildings around. But uh, but it, it totally like reminded me of, of playing those god games like um sim city you know like yeah. you build the city up and then uh i i you know i would do a model of vancouver and say okay here's the bridge and there's the there's the town and there's this and there's that and the problem is is you can never get down to accurate enough detail right right but you're just his, doing zoning his mod yeah you could do zoning and uh, you know i uh, in at least sim city 2000 they would automatically pop up what kind of building they wanted to put in there. So, you know, if you had a neighborhood, you'd have a church. And I'm like, I don't want a church there. Really? (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then you you can destroy the buildings and replace them, but they'll just pop up somewhere else. (laughs) And I was thinking, well, (laughs) you can't stop the churches, but I'm going to put in a lot of libraries. (laughs) (laughs) Because those are fixed assets, right? Yeah. So... That's oh. one of the uh, <laughs> the things that it had me thinking of, and I thought you were going to bring up microscopic God. Ah, uh, well, yeah. I mean, in a in a way, it's similar, uh, except he never goes into that world, right? Right. Um, and the Lord's over it. And uh, no, I don't think you're right. I think there's no chance anybody's going to say this is science fiction, except um, everything that happens in it is completely plausible except for one thing right that is uh the the city disappears right it disappears the city in the basement the small town in the basement disappears and is subsumed it it, it it comes in real life yeah it just it just enlarged into reality 
And so what happened to the one that was in the basement? I mean, in the the world that it was in, right? It got but, shoved into the next dimension. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Is there is it's so um, slipstream? Yeah. I don't, I, I don't really know how to explain it, but I I notice like there's a there's a lot of lines I was underlining. Like I was thinking, oh, I'll read through it and I'll just because listening to it, you're getting more of the mood you don't get to linger over the uh over the individual lines but uh, yeah yeah and that's why it's a twilight zone ep- i mean this reads so much like a twilight zone episode i can't believe rod did not produce yeah. this it reminds me of stopover in a quiet town remember that yeah. one is that shatner and the- uh no it's just a couple like the town everything is fake in the town oh oh, oh yes it's like yes. a shock ending and yeah. it's a little girl's doll thing in the backyard or whatever and yeah right yeah, yeah if you go yeah. to the wikipedia page it totally spoils it there's a big okay. picture of the ending i'm gonna i don't remember that one they, they I, i've laughing. seen them all but that's... they keep hearing laughing and they don't know what it is right is that that sounds yeah. like that's paranoia and but well it's a little girl playing with her dolls uh-huh you know what struck me i think the second time uh maybe right after i got your narration greg yeah um was uh, Haskell has, uh, uh, I thought it was going to be about trains, right? It's not about trains. It's about the town, but I think Dick uh, is very clever. Cause he says, he says it repeated a couple of times. He says, Haskell turned on the main transformer and then what happens, right? It's yeah. tra- the world is transformed. And then it says the transformer is turned up to maximum <laughs> and there's actually a whole bunch of transformers, right? Right. Right, there would have to be in an old. That's where the science comes in. <laughs> in the H.O. Oh. scale, yeah, yeah. Um, but if you wanted to build a diorama in the fifties, it was usually you would go to the train hobby stores, and that's where you got all the grass and the plastic trees and the you know the track and all that. But you'll notice that by the end of the story, he moves the train way out of town. It doesn't come through town anymore because there's no more industrial stuff. And when the yeah. The, the the wife and the lover are in the car or whatever at the end they hear yeah. the distant moan of the train and the train and, used to come right through the middle of town and yeah, also, i thought he was going to run them over bleak. what's that i thought he was going to run them over with the train uh well I, i'm sure he was tempted to he, uh, he got he got his revenge he, yeah. he got his revenge because he he was saying um you know i'm gonna do this as a police station right and then and then the thing he said, oh, this is this is the line that's so good. He says, after some consideration, he removed most of the bars he had previously constructed. Yeah. This, the, the, the new <laughs> moral was going to be moral, extremely yeah. moral, with few bars, no billiards, no red light district. And there was a special, an especially fine jail for undesirables. Yep. <laughs> and of course, we find out who the undesirables are. <laughs> the people who who are who screwed doing him over. them wrong, doing them wrong. Yeah, but you know these guys that used to set up these train things. I mean, they would be. I mean, if you really met one of these guys, because I don't think there's many of them around anymore. But when I was younger, there were huge numbers of guys who would set up, you know, just huge train sets with with incredibly meticulous detail i mean i've seen things that look like what dick is describing here i've known guys who have actually done this in their basement and given the time period i think a lot of people a lot of the readers at least would have known somebody who did this 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I was at the tail end of that as a kid, but I remember, you know, I, I even played with train sets as a kid. Um, but, yeah, I think it's it's been replaced by other things. I mean, Lego is is what I'm really into, and it's something I've been into since then. And in a way, it's kind of replaced that because you don't have to just buy things. You can build the things and then take it apart. So once you buy it, you have the, the yeah. ability to... Uh, Un, unmake it. But like prior a, prior to Lego hitting this country, there were what were called erector sets, one, erector yeah. sets, and Lincoln logs. Yeah. And, and oh, I had those. Did you yeah. ever have Meccano? I don't think so. That's it's a after British time. one, I think. It's it's uh it's basically it's like Lego except you use nuts and bolts <laughs> to screw little metal plates together to make. Uh, that's the that's the way erector sets work. Yeah. And Lincoln oh, really? logs, okay. yeah, Lincoln logs were notched on the ends, so you could build log cabins and stuff with forts, them. Uh, forts to prevent the Indians from invading and stealing all the the furs that you're buying from them. I guess. I, I think <laughs> you, you could build a picket fence. I think you could. Yeah. So. Yeah, I had uh, I had Lincoln logs left over from my my dad and his brothers. I don't know I, what yeah, they are now. I had matchbox cars. Yeah, I had well, some box cars too. It, it actually, you know, it does tie in because when uh, when they're at the end, they're racing through the streets, heading to the police station. Yeah, uh, it says the car goes up on two wheels, and I was thinking, really, the car goes up on two wheels? He's that desperate to get there? And then yeah. I was thinking, wait a second, no, what's happened is <laughs> there's like a little boy playing with the car, right? And he's going right. around the corner. She says. Yes. As he goes around the corner, and the way the landscape is described is described as bleak, right? And yeah. so at, when you're at the macro scale like we are, you look down in that town and you say, "Oh, it's 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 so nice. It's got a park and it's got this." But it re- what he really did was empty it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you could build your nirvana, would you fill it with a wide cross section of humanity, or would you? specialized the people that were there well i think we were talking about this before the podcast i was saying uh living in a small town is hell living in a a metropolis can be hell uh but uh, living in the wilderness all alone is kind of fun (laughs) so it's like uh the main thing is yeah i don't either want to have a lot of people so you don't have to know most of them or you want to have just know people so you don't have to know anybody <laughs> but if you have just a, a few number of people that you have to know that's the worst that's my feeling anyways okay I don't, I, i've lived in small towns i don't like them i i, I don't uh, uh, this is this is really a suburban town yeah. i mean i yeah, live in, in wilderness um you know and I would not consider there is no town. I mean, the, the nearest intersection to me is eight miles away. So, um, you know, small town is a, is a specific definition. And, and if you have a car, it's and you don't, you know, have to walk into the local uh, store and you know deal with the the guy who runs it who you hate and who right. hates you, but you have to buy from him and he has to sell to you because what are your options right. then it's not so bad but <clears throat> as a kid you know you you can you can buy the only comics that they offer at that one store and if you don't like them they they say screw you don't buy them 
Right. right? Those are your options. But in the big city, you you say, there's an actual store that's only for comics? Awesome! Yeah. Yeah, and that is the one thing I miss. But I'm in cities constantly because I travel all the time. So I I get my hit of urbanality. But, um, yeah, I miss being able to just walk to you know, well, I'm, there's no bookstores anymore. I don't even know what I'm saying, but, um, but yeah, the, the, it's, it's the culture. It, it, you know, I, I have to go from intense culture to, um, middle of nowhere. And, and I do that back and forth all the time over and over again, but, uh, I would never settle in a small town where, uh, the, the politics is more important than the living. Absolutely. Uh, I, I live in a condo and, uh, I, you know, I've been here for many years and I haven't once gone to any of the <laughs> local meetings because if I do, then I'll have to care. And, and they seem not to be totally bankrupting the place. So yeah. I don't I don't every time I have an interaction with one of my neighbors, it's 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 like, well, hopefully I can get through this without having some conversation about politics or 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 zoning or something, you know, yeah. what you're allowed to have on your sun deck or something like that. It's uh, but yeah, I, I think I mean that's how the story starts, right? He he says, "Let's move." Right, right. He hates this town, and yet he's been building it the whole his whole life. And I was thinking, well, does that mean does that mean that he made the world the way it is outside there in Woodland? Is is he the god of Woodland? Or is he only the god of the woodland after that point where it he was finished, right? Well, he doesn't have. Go ahead. I was gonna say the world he makes is kind of bleak. I mean, what what's so superior about the world that he creates? It's perfect for him. He's the he's he's the mayor. He's the he's remade everything into the way he likes it. He likes pet shops and mortuaries. <laughs> but is he there likes, any is there any people? Yeah, there's people. There's just okay. not. Uh, he he actually oh. says he only killed or he only removed one person, right? His oh. boss. Yeah, he made. He, oh, he took care of his boss. <laughs> yeah, he took yeah. care of him. That's right. But yeah, he he's not anti people okay. as much. He's I think he's anti uh, him getting shafted. Well, he's just a a prototypical little man character. Absolutely. And so it's it's. You know, getting shafted is just part of getting up and breathing and getting through the day. I don't think he's. He, I think he was just trying to. I mean, Dick was just trying to give us the little man character that we all know. Mm. Uh, again, which is what Serling gave us all the time. That's why I said this thing is such a Twilight Zone episode. Because if you if you look at you know Rod Serling had one rule for people writing episodes for him, and that was. Uh, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances was the way he would put it. And so I think, I think Dick was trying to do the same thing here. He was trying to give us an ordinary guy in extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. I, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day. Uh, they're talking about sword and sorcery podcasts, uh, not podcast books. And there was a lot of editors uh, talking and they were all talking about, you know, when you're sending me manuscripts, make sure you focus on the characters. And I'm like, no, don't do that. I don't care about the characters. I care about the idea. Right. And the, the characters are there to illustrate the idea. 
Um, in this story, you know, I don't like I don't like uh, Vern Haskell. I don't like his wife. I don't think the doctor's very cool. I don't like uh, any of the other minor characters. Uh, you know, the boss. I don't care about the characters at all. And I don't think I'm supposed to. What I think I'm supposed to get is the is the is the cool idea that he's trying to tell us about. And it's uh, my favorite part of the story is when uh, when the, there's the echo. Right? It says, "All done. It was complete. Joy welled up in him. A bursting cry of happiness. His work was over. Finished." Vern Haskell shouted. He yep. got unsteadily to his feet, right? Um, but they hear him upstairs as a distant echo. Yes. Right? It's like echoing outside the house. And, and they yet they also hear him downstairs. Say, say again? Like he's disappearing as he says that? No, like he's God outside of the... I thought. I thought what was happening is... Instead of they go downstairs and they find that the basement is empty, right? They yeah. find that the basement mm-hmm. is empty of even the town, and I thought, oh, that means, uh, that means that he's gone into the world, like the doctor was suggesting, right? But it and- turns out that the world went into the town. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure what's going on. The world went into the town, and I was thinking, well, does that mean inside that that model town there was a little house with Vern Haskell's wife in it, and in the basement there was a little model of the town? It's like I, maybe, yeah, I, I think uh, there was. I, he had the town completely copied, so yes, yeah, his house every was there. every like the the stores had magazines on the shelves, and right, it was a complete you know miniaturized version of the town. So when he he made it. He must have made himself in the basement, making the town. It's like infinite recursion. And you were saying, yeah, the world is pushed out into another dimension, something yeah. like that, right? Well, I, I was, I mean, or destroyed. I don't know. It, yeah. it, it, it's not really important to understanding God, not not the detrius that he may or may not create. Do you know what I mean? The focus mm-hmm. is on the God character, not not the nuts and bolts. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple other lines here that are good. Don't you understand? They'll never find him. He doesn't exist, at least not in our world. This is the doctor talking. He's in his own world. You saw it. The model. The improved substitute. Yeah. And so he's there, she says all his life he made he worked on it built it up made it real he brought it he brought that world into being and now he's in it that's what he wanted that's why he built it he didn't merely dream about an escape world he actually constructed it every bit and piece now he's warped himself right out of our world and into it uh, now he's wrong about that right he he didn't warp himself out of the world as much as he warped them into his world as well right. as himself. And in the scene where he is saying, you know, I'm done, he starts walking towards the table, and then there's a cut to a new scene upstairs. Um, right. And that's where the shout is. And I, that kind of reminded me of, you know, John Carter of Mars reaching up to the sky and saying, oh, there's Mars up there, and then poof, he's gone. Um, in a <laughs> sort of fantastic uh, 
flight of fantasy in the same way. Yeah. But, so yeah. Hand wavium thoughts. Hand wavium, yeah. Uh, I can tell you a line that I liked. Sure. Where Tyler is, is talking about reporting that uh, Vern is missing, he says, "And we'll make out in the meantime." <laughs> yeah. We'll take yeah. that to us. <laughs> make out in the meantime, absolutely. Well, they're they're in the dark in the corner in her pajamas. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is this is a recurring theme in Philip K. Dick stories, right? Especially okay. from this period. What uh, beyond the door? Uh, the that that guy's at at the house while the husband's out at work. There's a lot of <laughs> guys out at work. Uh, is that a reflection with, of his real life? Well, the thing is, is he's a writer, right? So he's at home. <laughs> he's at home yeah. writing. It's hard to get away with it. Yeah, but yeah, but he, he, it's like he has the paranoia, I guess. Well, that's true. But he saw he went through a string of women that he thought were faithless, and yep. I mean, if you follow this thread through all of his stuff, it 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 well, it goes all the way to the end, pretty much. But really, it it hits its pinnacle in Clans of the Alphane Moon. I don't know if mm-hmm. any of you guys have read no, that. I haven't read that one. But the wife is actually a sadistic, torturing. You know, I mean, just not nice. <laughs> dominatrix. And, and uh, yeah, and well, it's not even a dominatrix. She's, in a way, she's cuckolded the character. But they're already yeah. divorced in 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 this book that I'm talking about. It's just that she, you know, at, he couldn't make women any more faithless from that point forward he but but this is this is sort of like the beginning of that process where he's exploring that you know you just can't trust him there there's so i mean as i read more and more dick stories and there are so many of them i i see the the patterns and you know names recurring and that sort of thing but yeah before i get into that i wanted to give that quote the living room was dark and silent there was a sudden stir of motion and this is when he's coming home in the middle of the day Shapes untangling themselves, getting quickly up from the couch. He doesn't say they're having sex or making out on the couch, but that's what's going on, right? Right. And it's it's. It, I I I don't think the the science fiction mags of the time were completely averse to having sex in them. Were they completely averse to it, or is it just supposed you, to be like this subtle? I think you could hint at it. They yeah. wouldn't run away from it. Um, yeah. You know, you were just it was a nudge, nudge, wink, wink thing. Yeah. Uh, well, anyways, uh, I wanted to uh, talk about this town. So I don't, I don't think there is a town named Woodland near San Francisco, just down the coast beyond the fog belt. But that's where he lived, right? He, uh, Dick lived in. No, he uh, lived in Marin. That's north, on the uh, other side of the Golden Gate. Right. He, he he lived somewhere near San Francisco, right? Yes. Yes, but not down the coast, up the coast. Right. Okay. Um, but I don't think I don't think this particular town really exists. But one of the character names that appears over and over and over and over in his short stories mm-hmm. is Sylvia. Sylvia is is the one of the most common female names. It, it's in uh, Beyond, uh, sorry, um, Upon the Dull Earth. That's the main character there, the dark-haired girl with with uh, you know sort of a magic side to her, um, and. The town's name is Woodland. There's, it's like he is sort of longing for the, for the rustic forests or something. 
Somehow. Oh, yeah, maybe. And actually, there is a woodland, but it's the county seat of Yolo County, California, approximately 15 miles northwest of Sacramento. So it's landlocked. There would be no coast for them to go to. So it can't be this woodland. Yeah, it's it's a made up. I mean, it's 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 a small town. It's it's yeah. not supposed to be San Francisco. It's not supposed to be a real place. It's supposed to be like a real place. It's uh, it's a life size diorama. It, pretty much, yeah. What's a diorama? I don't even know. Oh, uh, when you make a model of you know like a town or that's what his thing in the basement is called basically. Except um, yeah. trains sort maybe make it not a diorama, but yeah, if if you've got some sort of still life that you've done a little miniature version of. Yeah. Like when you take the telltale heart and you make a little model and you bring it to school and everybody says, aha, see the basement? Yeah. And the little trap door. And, yeah, the, yeah. The heart beating down there. And it's yeah. Like, oh, cute. Um, okay. It also, I mean, in plot, it's kind of similar to the days of Perky, Perky Pat. Yeah. And and that was turned into a, a book as well, a, a novel. Yeah. Can't remember which yeah. one it was, but um, that's a story in which uh, everybody—I think they're living on Mars. They, everybody is ha, real life is terrible, so they all collect these dolls and they buy these figurines. No, 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 that's that's the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldrick. Yeah, that's it's the same. It's it's an expansion of it. Well, Perky. Okay, all right. Perky, I, I believe. Yeah, I, it, I mean, it has a lot of the same themes. I I just don't think of them as the same story three stigmata is okay let's talk about three stigmata because that's the one i i read recently i if i read perky pat it was years and years ago but in that story we've got a bunch of people living on i think it's mars and they spend their adults they spend all their time playing with little miniature dolls in kind of like a game of life and also it's kind of like barbie and they say she's going over here <laughs> and she's going shopping and he says, but he doesn't want to do that. And this is like a, fa- a couple of parents playing with these, you know, children's dolls. And then the neighbors, they, they get together with the neighbors and they play their dolls. And it's almost kind of like a role playing game, except there's no dice or anything. They just sort of make up the rules. Well, but, but there's, it's a consensual sort of there's there's hallucinogenic drugs, though. I mean, what's a yeah. can can do and yeah. yeah choosy or whatever yeah um so they're actually you know putting themselves in that <laughs> uh you know they're converting their their consciousnesses over to that reality using chemical stimulation they actually think they're in those <laughs> unlike Vern Haskell who actually is <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> real man yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that that brings us to I think what I I I think is a really interesting pairing. So I I sent you guys a copy of this movie, Marwin Call. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. What did you guys What did you think of it, Tam? Uh very different. It's definitely different. <laughs> I mean, it's basically, I, I, it's basically like this story. This guy works on uh, his own miniature town to uh, I guess psychologically cope with some kind of abuse. He got uh, beat up by a bunch of people. Yeah, he was attacked. Yeah, but I don't think it's psychological. Well, maybe it is psychological. Well, I, he, he was saying it was therapeutic. therapeutic. Yeah. yeah. Yes, but it, it, he had physical damage to his brain that yeah. he had to relearn a, a number of tasks, and so to uh, you know improve his uh, 
his ability to manipulate small objects and things like that, he started making this model town and eventually started photographing it and gets these photographs that are, <laughs> you know, stunningly compelling for a bunch yeah, of G.I. Joe amazing. dolls <laughs> uh, and Barbies. And Barbies. Yeah. 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 To a whole new you know, level. I like the stories that he tells too, because they they're they're kind of wish fulfillment, right? They're they they reflect his world. They explain his world. Sorry, the world around him, right? Yeah. But they also they're you know it's it's almost like what what happened was he was made simple, and I don't mean simple as in stupid. I mean simple as in very simple, very plain. There's no well, I I was thinking like just. You know, there's no, there's nothing hidden. He's, it's all out, and you, you want to know what's going on in his mind. It's right there. He wants a girl. He yeah. wants to be loved. He wants to be hugged. He wants uh, to have power back. He wants everybody to get along and not to be, um, you know, it's, it, it's a beautiful story, I think. Yeah, and the, the the difference between him and Vern Haskell is that he lets people influence his story. So the 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 woman he worked with, he she wanted a tall, dark uh, boyfriend. He gave her a Navajo right. warrior, and then she found out he had a Steve McQueen doll, and she wanted right. Steve McQueen, so he broke her up and brought her over. To, I mean, that's that's he's letting other people into his world, whereas yeah. Vern Haskell has a has a force field between his world and everything else. Yeah, yeah, she dumped that first guy fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I, it's 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 if it w- if it was wasn't a documentary, I would think that this is like the guy had read the story. You know, it's like um, because not because you know the, the, they both have small towns, but just because he is doing something that is very interesting, and in that he's he is living in a dream world. But the dream world is a real place. It's you know it's in his backyard, and he's got avatars where he you know he talks about how that's you, that's you in that town, and this is me, and we're getting married. And she's like, we're not getting married. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. married already. And he's like, well, I know, but <laughs> it's uh, uncomfortable. Yeah, make the lady uncomfortable, but. <laughs> You know, he's a man. He he wants to be loved. He hasn't felt love for many years. Yeah. Um, and yet... Well, he has that lady with the blue hair. Uh, Deja Thoris, you mean? The, yeah, the witch the, of Belgium. Whatever. The Belgian witch of Marwenkal, or whatever yeah. her name is. Yeah. Who has a time machine. Yeah, she has a time machine made of an old VCR. And yeah. And a, a phone he found on the side of the road. It's... Uh, when when they get to uh, yeah you know let's talk about it Greg you were saying before we started the podcast about what you liked about how the movie was put together uh, how the story is told can you yeah he, I think the filmmaker uh, whose name I don't have in front of me now did a really good job of bleeding that story out and not hitting you I mean the, the temptation is always to go with the lead and I don't want to spoil the story for anybody who ends up watching the movie but um, it continues to get more and more complex and present you with more and more conflicts um, until once he finally reveals the whole story, you are forced to be sympathetic to someone that 
you may not normally have been sympathetic to. So it's kind of like Clockwork Orange, where you start rooting for the asshole at the end. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, um, and and just to resist that temptation and not play out, you know, not give you the ending right away, is the difference between you know some documentary you see on the Learning Channel and a documentary uh-huh. that should be winning awards in a, you know, in a. This film. is a real, real movie documentary. You know, like the. The great ones that come around every once in a while, you say, "Yeah, that you got to see this movie." It's not a documentary like you know that they do on TV, where it is. Yeah, you're right. They they tell you what they told you. They're going to tell you again because the commercial's coming up. They're going to tell right. you when it comes back. Right. This is they'll they'll tell you stuff again, right? But they they it's adding layers to the story in the same way that uh you know it's modifying the story, modifying the world. So we start off with, you know, the, the plain fact that he's he was attacked outside of a bar. Uh, he was in hospital. He was recovering. And uh, we meet all the people in his life and their little avatars, right? Right. Which right. is uh, amazing. Uh, it's amazing stuff. Uh, the director is uh, Jeff Malmberg, by the way. Okay. Right? And yeah. Uh, I well just, done, Jeff. Yeah, Amazing. I, I I'm really impressed with like I I it's the second time I watched it and it's it is it is really well told story because you've got all the different people in his life you've got the the prosecutor who put the the guys who did it in jail you've got uh you know his old roommate uh, you've got yep. the lady across the street you've got the and then the story of how he become that's where the story really goes right he becomes he, he becomes an artist right um and if you look at the drawings that he did i, I thought he was a really good uh drawer like is that what they're oh, called yeah 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 illustrator no, yeah. i thought they were great illustrations it had a kind of texture like r crumb i mean yeah was, very yeah. um stylized but but you know, really telling a story with with the pictures. You know, he's telling a story about his own life, even before when he was when he was drinking. But when you know his hand doesn't work anymore, the art doesn't go away. It just transforms right. into well, you can't draw those pictures. Take those pictures. He uses the camera. Yeah, yeah, and he was still using a chemical developer. <sighs> Amazing. I mean, for thousands and thousands of pictures. I thought Kodak went out of business a couple of weeks ago. I mean, jeez. <laughs> well, he, he, I mean, eventually they're showing him using a digital, so. Uh, yeah, he has a Pentax at the beginning, but then he's got a digital, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know if he would send away his photograph to be developed, and you have to wait three weeks, and then if he came back with the wrong exposure, he would just do it over again. Yeah. Yeah, because he didn't know anything about lighting or or. He wasn't a camera guy. He was doing it because he he wanted to preserve his town. That was the main thing, right? Yeah. Preserve the storylines, and uh, I mean, if you think of the other Philip K. Dick story, where where this is uh, this is just coming to me now, but it really works. It's in that movie um, Blade Runner, right? The the androids they don't have real memories, right? They have right. no memories. So when they're alive, they want to make memories, and they take photographs of the time. Yeah, you know, yesterday, and then they look back at those pictures like they're nostalgic, right? Yeah. yeah. Remember that time we were in the bathtub? Yeah, that was awesome. And that's like, hey, that's yesterday. Yeah, but look, I've got them here. And yeah. he's got that, you know, he doesn't remember his marriage. He doesn't remember his life, 
you know, what kind of guy was I? Yeah. That's amazing. And it's almost like because of, I mean, it's, I don't want to look at him like a laboratory specimen, but I really think that there's something interesting going on that sort of Philip is kind of Philip K. Dickian in the sense that we're getting an insight into what humans are like, not just, you know, him, but he wants to be loved. He wants to uh, have a community. He wants to have all that stuff. And I, I think there's something really special going on there. I, I think that, I mean, one of, if not the most overriding theme that runs through all of Phil Dick's work is that reality and consciousness are fluid constructs. Mm-hmm. And and this movie shows you someone in three dimensions in the real world who has, uh, you know, manipulated his reality. He's he's moved the fluid around or it, it's at different levels for him. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's. You know, if you it, it, there's a in in a lot of Asian philosophy, a lot of Buddhist stuff says that there is no such thing as crazy. There's just sort of like differently enabled. So, I mean, they don't even really see it as a mental illness. They just see it as oh, that guy sees stuff that's different from the stuff I see. Um, and they don't try and judge it on that way and, and use peer pressure to force you into a civilization and all that sort of stuff. So w- what's really at the heart of this thing is this guy continues to be different, which is he was different always before the attack mm-hmm. and after he is true to the fact that he marches to a different drummer and he just he just. You know, it's just a different cadence before and after the accident. So he does make his own reality and he does say that's where he wants to be. That's that's he's happiest there. And he, um, he, he his dream is right. Have a girl playing with him. Right. You know, yeah. in that town, you know, she can control the girls and he can control the guys. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's there's because what was the uh, the guy from Asopus magazine? He said he said that. It was what when you're looking at the pictures, there's no irony, right? It's not, hey, I'm right. an artist and I'm playing with dolls and isn't this cute? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. No, it's here's some pictures of my world. Look at them. Yeah. Oh, not yeah. even look at them. Here's some pictures of my world. If you're, if, oh, you're asking about my world here, this is what it looks like, right? And in that authenticity, uh, I mean, he is an authentic person. The fact that, you know, he goes home and his roommate says, whose shoes are those? Uh, he says to his roommate, whose shoes are those? He says, they're yours, right? Yeah. You wear those shoes. You collect those women's shoes. You wear them. Um, and he's like, oh. <laughs> and we're like, oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Right? But that's three quarters of the way through the movie before they give you that little tidbit. And yeah. then they then they ramp it up for the last quarter. So... Yeah, I think he wants to be one of the girls. Yeah, well, and, and yeah, I he, think it's not that it's not like he's really a repressed homosexual. What it is 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 people are complicated, and when when you are when you are denied access to women, maybe uh, giving license to your feminine side helps you get access to women. And what's he doing when he's playing with Deja Thoris and sending her, you know? off to rescue him from the uh from the evil ss right um it's <clears throat> it's the same thing philip k dick's doing with the the characters in the story right 
Right. And it is, it, it is about life being about perspective. I mean, our, our protagonist in the movie finally goes to Greenwich village and finds people that don't care. Uh, that he's wearing high heels. Yeah. Yeah. That would never beat him up outside a bar for that. And, and so there are, you know, there are places that are more accepting of different perspectives and those people are more interested in understanding how the world works than, you know, looking for reward or whatever the other side is doing. I don't know, but yeah. But wasn't he a, a cross dresser in the beginning? Isn't that why he got beat up? Well, I don't, I don't think it actually said why he was beat up, but uh, let's assume that that's true. I, that would, that would explain it, right? Yeah. He says that other people tell him that he told the five guys in the bar that he was a cross-dresser right, right. and they follow him out of the bar and beat him senseless. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I, if you look at some of those drawings, it looked like he was, he was interested in world war two before. So, it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's, but it's like, there's this town in Belgium somewhere, Marwen call. Right, yeah. so Mar- Marlene, Wendy, and Colleen, no, or something no, like that. No, it's him, Mark, Wendy, Mark, and Wendy, and Colleen. Right, right. right. So the it's it's a I just I I'm really impressed. Yeah, I liked it too. It was it was well done. Um, and you know I've I've had I've been involved in a number of documentaries, and so I sort of understand the structure and how you're supposed to um, do exposition. And this guy must have read the same books I did. (laughs) That was great. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.